0: smartphone. This is Bones FM
1: News. Welcome to today's news headlines from the Scottish Radio News team. I'm Alistair Connell. A man and two women have been arrested and charged following a disturbance at a property in Aberdeen which left another man hospitalised. Police were called to the Hayton Road area of Tillydrone shortly before midnight on Friday with a 38-year-old man taken to Aberdeen Royal Infirmary. He remains in a stable condition and three people have since been arrested following the incident with a 22-year-old man and two women aged 18 and 52 also charged. The trio are expected to appear at Aberdeen Sheriff. A firm favourite on Edinburgh's restaurant scene has announced its closure. With great sadness, Bell's Diner in Stalkbridge has been serving up old school burgers since 1972, with locals returning for their constantly great food. Owners Mickey and Susie said they're hanging up their aprons on March 23rd. Locals were gutted to hear of the closure, though thanked Bell's for the fond memories. Updating customers on Facebook, the owner said it's goodbye Bell's from Mickey and Susie. A train operating company has launched a consultation which could see the removal of direct services from Motherwell to and from London. LNER is proposing to remove one train service travelling in both directions every day from the town. The King's Cross direct service leaving Motherwell at 0704 travelling south and the same service travelling north from London which arrives in Motherwell before departing for Glasgow Central at 2103 are those that would be affected. The withdrawal of the train will also affect Glasgow Central on the same route, with a morning service originating there at 0648 and the evening service terminating at 2126, which will no longer be the case. LNAR says the decision to remove the services reflects changes in travel patterns and in recent years, more customers are choosing to travel for leisure than for business. A pair of guinea pigs were found abandoned in a bag in Renfrewshire Village by a shop family last week. With the ground frozen following a week of sub-zero temperatures, it was a miracle the little creatures managed to survive the ordeal. The furry animals were discovered in a pets-at-home bag on the old Greenock Road path in Bishopton by a family returning from the Ingolston Country Club and Hotel at around 7.30pm on Friday January the 19th. It looked like somebody just stopped their car, dropped them there and drove away. Uh, the piece express were told this by the mother who wished to remain anonymous it was so windy and freezing she said i remember that because me and my wee boy and my husband were coming down the road and holding my son's hands to slide him down the path because it was covered nice i was really upset and couldn't believe that somebody could actually do that we just lifted it up and took it and went to the co-op and got some carrots and lettuce for them took them home and made a little bed for them the Scottish SPCA says we don't know why these guinea pigs were abandoned, but if MD is struggling to look after an animal, it's important to get in touch with us. We'd much rather help people before issues mount up and animals begin to suffer. That's your cop. up. More news in an hour. MERS FM
2: weather with ACE competitions.
1: And now the weather here on Merns FM for the Grampian area. Monday will be mostly dry with brighter sunny spells but feeling much cooler than Sunday. Winds mostly light with a maximum temperature of 6 degrees Celsius. The yeah, outlook for Tuesday to Thursday. will another mostly fine day on Tuesday, clouding over into the evening. Winds will become very strong on Wednesday and easing for a time on Thursday and there will be rain or showers at times which will be heaviest in the West. Merns FM weather with Ace Competitions.
2: Head over to Ace Competitions or find us on Facebook and Instagram for more
3: information.
0: And so, just when you thought you'd heard it all from behind the scene antics of senior politicians during the pandemic, along comes more inspiration. And with it, little surprise that Nicola Sturgeon described Boris Johnson on her WhatsApp messaging as a clown. Hamza Yusuf says WhatsApp is not the government's finest hour. He pledges an external review into Mobile messaging. And the SNP calls for a ceasefire in the Israeli-Gaza conflict. From Caledonia Media, I'm Charles Fletcher with Scotland's favourite political show, The Week in Hollywood. It has not
4: been, uh, frankly, the government's uh, finest hour in relation to handling those requests, and
0: I put my hands up to that, uh, unlike, of course, other uh, governments. The First Minister says the government's relationship with the WhatsApp social messaging app is not its finest hour. He's promised an urgent and independent external review into the use of mobile messaging apps and non-corporate technology. The use of WhatsApp and the continuing COVID inquiry dominated questions to the First Minister this week. Both Conservative and Labour leaders focused their calls for transparency and trust. In a moment, we'll hear from Anas Sarwar. but first to Douglas Ross.
5: During the pandemic, Nicola Sturgeon made government decisions over WhatsApp. She was ordered by the UK COVID inquiry to retain those messages. The former First Minister promised to provide them. She said, I have nothing to hide. But we now know she deleted them all. She broke promises to grieving families. She may have broken the law. Does the First Minister accept it was completely wrong and utterly scandalous for Nicola Sturgeon to delete those messages?
6: First
4: Minister... Before I answer Douglas Ross's question of uh, substance, can I just say at the offset, given that this is the uh, uh, FMQ's uh, before Holocaust Moro Day, that it has never been more important to remember the victims of the Holocaust and indeed with genocides which followed. Uh, together we remember the millions of lives that have been cut short with the utmost cruelty and brutality. The freedom and dignity of every citizen relies on our willingness to defend each other's human rights and to stand up against cruelty and violence everywhere. In the world. It's a responsibility that we share equally, it's the responsibility of all of us to remember the Holocaust and of course to pay tribute to the survivors of those atrocities. So ahead of Holocaust Memorial Day on Saturday, my thoughts today and I hope that everybody's thoughts, uh, my thoughts every day should be with those who were affected then and and those who are affected uh, still. Let me come on to the... let me importantly come to the issue of uh, substance and I will start this exchange as I have started exchanges on this issue uh, in recent weeks and months and that is by giving first and foremost an unreserved apology to those families who were bereaved by COVID in relation to our handling of the issue of informal uh, communication such as WhatsApp as an organisation on the issue of WhatsApp messages uh, we did not handle the request in a way uh, that gave families that have been bereaved by COVID uh, confidence. In fact, quite the opposite. And they have asked for nothing unreasonable. They've asked uh, for answers. They've asked for the truth. And I will certainly uh, do that when I appear in front of the inquiry later uh, today. Uh, Douglas Ross is asking me uh, about Nicola uh, Sturgeon. Of course, Nicola Sturgeon, uh, I believe has now being confirmed, will appear in front of the COVID inquiry Uh, next week. She will answer uh, for herself. What I would say is when it comes to any decisions that are made uh, as per records management policy, any decisions, whether it's made over WhatsApp, whether issues are discussed over email, over telephone call, any communication, any method of communication that's used, it's so important that those points are then, of course, uploaded to the corporate record, uh, any decisions that are made, and any uh, salient uh, points. What I would say to Douglas Ross, and I'll end on this point, is we have, of course, handed over 28,000 WhatsApp messages, mine's included. That's in very stark contrast to the Prime Minister, of
0: course. Yeah, Douglas Ross.
5: Uh, can I fully associate myself uh, with the First Minister's remarks ahead of Holocaust Memorial Day uh, on Saturday. Uh, But I asked a very simple question. What did he feel about Nicola Sturgeon deleting these messages uh, and we heard nothing? But while Nicola Sturgeon led the cover-up and the secrecy, she wasn't alone. The then Deputy First Minister John Swinney also deleted his messages. And isn't it telling that neither of them can be in the chamber today? So while they deleted messages, let's look at some of the messages we have seen. The Chief Medical Officer, Professor Gregor Smith, reminded colleagues in a WhatsApp chat to delete at the end of every day. Ken Thompson, the former Scottish Government Director General wrote, I feel moved at this point to tell you this chat is FOI recoverable. He went on, plausible deniability is my middle name. A message from the National Clinical Director Jason Leach said, WhatsApp deletion is my pre-bed ritual. And he also said, just my usual reminder to delete your chat, particularly after we reach a conclusion. From politicians to civil servants, they sought to destroy evidence. Doesn't this show a... Culture of secrecy running through this entire SNP government.
7: First Minister.
4: Frost talks about the about? culture of secrecy. Well, we handed over 28,000 messages, 19,000 documents. Let's hear the First Minister. The former First Minister did 250 media briefings, yeah. taking questions from journalists day after day. That hardly rings true of the accusations that Douglas Ross is making of a government that was hiding from scrutiny. Far from that, every single day, the former First Minister was
7: standing up, taking questions. First Minister, First Minister, (coughs) First Minister, there are many members wishing to put questions in this session. It will make it far more likely that members will be taken if we can hear one another. First Minister can I say uh, to
4: Douglas Ross, for all the accusations that he is throwing at the former First Minister, the former Deputy First Minister, and of course they will give evidence to the inquiry, I don't intend to prejudge that or put words in their mouth, I'm assuming then that those same accusations then ring true for his colleague, the Prime Minister, who hasn't handed over a single WhatsApp message. Because if if the accusations that he is making against Nicola Sturgeon and that he's, ho- that, he's, that he's throwing towards the former deputy first minister. If he believes that doesn't hold true for the prime minister, who hasn't handed over a single message, then that isn't just political opportunism. It is breathtaking hypocrisy, presiding officer.
5: Dr Shaw. That's just risable and embarrassing from the first minister. Look at the facts here. Nicola Sturgeon destroyed all of her messages. She did that deliberately, but some have been recovered from other people. This morning's COVID inquiry session with Liz Lloyd, Nicola Sturgeon's former chief of staff, has revealed that COVID decisions were unquestionably made on WhatsApp. There are many examples in her evidence, but let's just take one. With just two hours to go before a statement in this parliament, Nicola Sturgeon said on WhatsApp that she was not sure what to do about the number of people at weddings and funerals. Her chief of staff replied, I think as we have only just put them up, we just leave it. I think we stay at 20. Therefore, a government decision to stay at 20 was taken over WhatsApp. Now, Hamza Youssef, Hamza Youssef, has previously said, and I quote, the Scottish Government did not routinely make decisions through WhatsApp. Did the First Minister mislead Parliament when he said that, or did he not realise that government policy... Members, we must hear one another. I'm happy to repeat this to SNP members who seem to want to drown this out. So did the First Minister mislead Parliament when he said that, or did he not realise that Scottish Government policy was being made on the hoof over WhatsApp?
7: First Minister.
4: Uh, WhatsApp is a communication application rather than a decision-making tool. Instead, each minister... the. Each minister, supported by a private office, this team of course compromises private secretaries and ministers of staff. A private office records the specific decisions of ministers for the official record. Uh, they're laughing, that is from the Scotland office. Of course, when we asked them for Douglas Ross's WhatsApp messages, of course, which they refused to release. So the point here is, the point here is, of course, that WhatsApp messages, WhatsApp is not routinely used. Douglas Ross literally read out my quote. It's not routinely used. If it was used to make decisions, then of course, well, they're getting, they're getting up their arms Minister, on what Douglas Ross First Minister, has said.
7: I am sorry, I cannot hear a word that you are saying and that will be the case for those who are visiting the Parliament today. And I would ask all members to remember the requirement to conduct our business in an orderly manner. Because the truth is inconvenient for the Conservatives here because it's very, very simple that
4: if decisions were made over WhatsApp, then of course they would have to be recorded. Otherwise, how on earth would they be actioned? So they're then recorded on the corporate record and taken forward all salient points and all key decisions. Let me just go back to the point I made in response to the very first question that Douglas Ross asked. I do believe uh, that there are challenges in relation to our use of WhatsApp. It has not been, uh, frankly, the government's uh, finest hour in relation to handling those requests. And I put my hands up to that uh, unlike, of course, other uh, governments, and that's why I have commissioned officials to deliver an externally led review—not so a government review, but externally led review—into the use of mobile messaging apps and the use of non-corporate technology in the Scottish Government, and that should take particular account uh, of uh, our interaction with statutory public uh, inquiries. But when it comes to uh, being transparent, I go back to the point that I've made. The government handed over 28,000 messages, 19,000 documents. I myself, as First Minister uh, of the government, have handed over my WhatsApp messages. That is in stark contrast to a UK government uh, to the Prime Minister, who's refused to hand over a single message and, of course, took the
5: inquiry to court, only to lose. Douglas Ross. There was so much in that. Can I just be absolutely clear? I'm not sure what the First Minister was speaking about, my own WhatsApps. I provided my WhatsApps from my time as a Government Minister to the COVID Inquiry, and they are there on the record. Unlike senior nationalists, I didn't delete mine. But the evidence we've heard today is, quite frankly, shocking. It confirms that pandemic decisions by the SNP were made for political purposes. Well, they're saying what? The Education Secretary is saying what on earth? Well, let me say, Nicola Sturgeon's Chief of Staff talks of making, and I quote, purely political moves on public health to start a good old fashioned Ramy with the UK government. In another handwritten note, in another handwritten note, she says, She is going to look at political tactics, calling for things we can't do. Hiding revelations like this must have been the reason that the SNP government destroyed so much evidence. The First Minister, the Deputy First Minister, the National Clinical Director, the Chief Medical Officer all deleted their messages. Discussions and crucial decisions have vanished. A top-down culture of secrecy was rife throughout this entire government. It looks like the most senior figures have engaged in a deliberate cover-up. So now it has been confirmed I have your that question, the SNP Mr. Ross. made some crucial Covid decisions for purely political reasons. Is Hamza Youssef ashamed that the SNP government made purely political reasons during the pandemic? And isn't that the ultimate betrayal of the public who sacrificed so much? Minister, uh, I, I,
4: I reject the charge uh, in its entirety. Uh, ...presiding officer. We had, of course, and published regularly the approach in relation to the four harms... uh, ...approach that we took uh, in regards to decisions that were made in relation to the pandemic. And every single day, I can say uh, with confidence that our overarching priority was always to keep the people of this country safe. That was what the overarching priority was. Mr Ross... That was the overarching priority. Did we get every decision right? Absolutely not. And we will be rightly questioned about that in both the UK inquiry and the Scottish uh, inquiry. But I know our motivation, every step of the way, was to ensure that we kept the people of this country safe. Was that not in stark contrast, of course, to a UK government holding parties in number 10, uh, holding parties in the treasury and the obscene spectacle of the then Members. Prime Minister flagrantly breaching the rules yeah. while their loved ones, uh, individuals, families couldn't go to their loved ones' uh, funerals. Yeah. And throughout all of that, presiding officer, Douglas Ross hasn't had the decency to apologise once.
0: Labour leader Anas Sarwar wonders if people will ever trust the first minister again.
2: Presiding officer, Saturday marks Holocaust Memorial Day on the theme Fragility of Freedom. A day we pause, reflect and remember all those who have been victims of genocide, but also a moment to pause and reflect on those that still strive to live with peace, with dignity, away from conflict and without prejudice. What has been revealed at the COVID Inquiry this week has rightly shocked people across Scotland. The attempts to subvert the Inquiry and to breach Freedom of Information laws is frankly a betrayal of the trust people put into this Government. WhatsApp messages deleted on an industrial scale. The former First Minister using a private SNP email address for government business. Officials openly joking about breaking the law while the COVID pandemic tore through our country. The culture of cover-up started with the First Minister and extended down to the senior civil service. In June, when I asked Hamza Youssef if, and I quote, all requested emails... Texts and WhatsApp messages will be handed over in full, he responded in this Parliament without equivocation, yes. Now that we know this wasn't true, was the First Minister knowingly misleading Parliament, or was he so out of his depth he didn't know what, he was, go- what was going on? First Minister,
4: of course we did hand over what we had. Twenty-eight thousand messages that we have have been handed over. For those officials or indeed former ministers of the government that don't have WhatsApp messages, they will have to account for that in front of the inquiry. But Anastasia can't say that there was deletion on an industrial scale when 28,000 messages have been handed over to the COVID inquiry. He can't say that I've been leading that from the top when I've handed over all of the WhatsApp messages I have, and no doubt in a, few hours, in a couple of hours' time will be questioned about them. So I think uh, Anna Sawar is absolutely right, as Douglas Ross is, to ask questions about informal communications. There's nothing wrong uh, in that, but to suggest that somehow uh, there was a cover-up, I frankly uh, do not believe even the public uh, agree with Anna Sawar nor, D- nor Douglas Ross. Why? Because the public looked at this government, questioned this government, saw that this government had a First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, who stood in front of the cameras uh, every Let's single hear the first day, minister every single day and took questions from journalists from members of this parliament over 250 times hardly hardly the measure or the mark of a government that was trying
2: to avoid scrutiny, presiding officer. Anna Sarwar. I think the First Minister must live in a parallel universe. The First Minister at the time deleted every WhatsApp message. The Deputy First Minister at the time deleted every WhatsApp message. The Chief Medical Officer at the time deleted every WhatsApp message. The National Clinical Director at the time deleted every WhatsApp message. If that is not deletion at an industrial scale, I do not know what planet Hamza Youssef lives in. (laughs) the First Minister gave an unequivocal commitment to Parliament, but on his watch ministers and officials failed to comply with Do Not Destroy Notices. Key evidence has been deleted and deliberately misleading statements have been given to the press and the public on his watch. One specific issue I raised with Hamza Youssef was the use of private SNP email accounts to conduct government business, something they have repeatedly denied. But evidence to the inquiry this week has blown that claim out of the water. When I asked Hamza Youssef in November if all emails, be the government or party emails, will be handed to the inquiry, again he said this in this Parliament. As for any other form of communication, including any other email address, it is my full expectation that that is handed over. He is First Minister and Leader of the SNP, so can I ask him, have any emails from SNP accounts been handed to the COVID inquiry, and if so, how many? First Minister, uh, to Anasawa, uh, of course, the, the, the point which I think is
4: fundamental here: the use of a non-government email address, such as an SNP uh, email address, that doesn't exempt official correspondence from freedom of information requests. Uh, for example, if a freedom of information request for a particular, about a particular issue or for a particular document. That is not subverted because it's it's been sent to an SNP email address. Uh, therefore, it should be handed over. Uh, I can give an absolute guarantee when it comes to my SNP uh, email address. No government business was conducted over it. Uh, and of course, in any private uh, in any private communication application that I have, uh, things have, uh, messages have been handed over. Not, over. not only have I handed over WhatsApp messages on my private Twitter account, where there's been private uh, DMs uh, that they have also. Uh, been handed over uh, to. So when it comes to the government, uh, I have made it very clear to every single minister, every single cabinet secretary, the permanent secretary has made it clear to every single civil servant uh, that uh, regardless of the method of communication uh, that is used, uh, that we must comply with the Public Records Act, with FOI legislation, and indeed with our mobile messaging policy. I go back uh, to the point that I made to Douglas Ross, that regardless of the communication uh, method used, whether it's an SNP email address or otherwise, any decisions that are made uh, must be recorded in the corporate record uh, and the salient points uh, therefore recorded as well. And we'll continue to comply fully, as I intend to do in a couple of hours' time, uh, with the UK COVID
2: inquiry.
6: Anders sarwar
2: This is meant to be a government he's in charge of and a party he's in charge of, but he can't answer for anybody else in government or his party and only goes back to his own messages and his own emails. But this isn't just about the inquiry this is about how this government operates because this is a party that over the last 17 years in government has created a culture of secrecy and cover up. A culture that goes from the first minister down because the SNP believe that it's one standard for them and another standard for everyone else because somehow the rules don't apply to the SNP. They have abused the trust that the people of Scotland put in them and if they won't take my word from it Maybe they should listen to Caroline Stewart of the Scottish Covid bereaved. She said this, I trusted them. I felt him and Nicola Sturgeon were honest and trying to be open with us and to find out that that was all just a facade. I don't understand how they can hold their head up high. First Minister, how can you ever expect the people of Scotland to trust you or your party ever again?
7: Through the chair, please. First I will minister. always leave the verdict
4: of trust to the Scottish people. And that's why we will comply, but not just the UK inquiry, the Scottish COVID inquiry, which of course we instructed. When it comes to transparency, that's why we've handed over 28,000 WhatsApp messages. That's transparency. 19,000 documents. That's transparency. When it comes to what this government has done across a range of portfolios, whether it's the duty of candor, whether it's the patient safety commissioner, that is transparency. Whether it's public inquiries and instructing them, that is transparency. Whether it was the former first minister standing up in over 250 media conferences, that was transparency. Taking questions from this chamber on Let's multiple hear occasions. hear the first minister that is transparency. And I will end where I started my my response to Douglas Ross, that when it comes to those families that have been bereaved by COVID, first and foremost, our responsibility is to them. I can promise them when I appear in front of the inquiry, that I know that they won't just want warm words, They will want to see and hear truthful answers to straight questions and that's what I intend to do when I appear in front of the inquiry in a couple of hours' time.
0: And with the pandemic at the heart of this week's session of FMQs, it's timely to have the UK COVID inquiry sitting in Edinburgh. We've learned a lot, have we not, about what went on behind the scenes in government in London. We're learning also about what's happened here. That includes confirmation Nicola Sturgeon believes Boris Johnson is a clown. Actually, she used an adjective that starts with an F to emphasise her view. The current First Minister, Hamza Youssef, also had a colourful description of clinical director Jason Leach. And right across government and senior members of the civil service, there seems to have been a policy to wipe WhatsApp messages almost on a daily basis or as Jason Leach described it, as a pre-bed ritual. Here's part of Hamza Yousaf's testimony at the inquiry.
8: Arriving at your desk, uh, approaching the new job and immediately getting stuck into some of the difficult decisions that you had to uh, engage in. Uh, In particular, uh, the context is that you are discussing uh, figures which have arisen relating to concerns about the rise in cases in the Glasgow area uh, and in particular, uh, East Renfrewshire, uh, which sem- seemed to your on your initial analysis to be indicating uh, a, a cause for concern as the cases were going up. Is that is that a fair summary of the the context? That is fair. Um, and you you are seeking Professor Leach's uh, input and counsel on that decision. Is that right? That is correct. yeah. Uh, and you you refer at 11:52, uh, wrapping up. I think your your discussion with. Uh, Uh, Professor Leach on that subject that you'll be on the deep dive uh, and then Professor Leach replies good there was some FM keep it small shenanigans as always she actually wants none of us. Um, This is Professor Leach giving you guidance and advice on your first day in the new job is that right? Uh, Yes. And he refers to the First Minister's keep it small shenanigans and that she actually wants none of us. Was this an indication in fact that the First Minister really took decisions in connection with the pandemic herself or at least would have preferred it that way?
4: No, I think that was as Jason said when he gave evidence to this very inquiry, uh, an example of him perhaps uh, over speaking. Um, I, I don't doubt of course that there was times when the former First Minister needed a tighter ta- cast list, wanted a tighter cast list to make a decision on a very uh, specific uh, issue, um, but uh, I think this was a, a classic example of Jason perhaps uh, uh, over-speaking. When you talk about the tighter cast list,
8: are you talking about the gold command or something similar? Yes, generally gold command. Yeah. So in essence, as I suggested to you earlier, the practice was that the decisions would be made by the First Minister gathering around her uh, a small number of close advisers rather than putting the matter to Cabinet or exposing herself to the wider advisory structures of the Scottish Government. Is that
4: correct? No, I I would say that again a number of decisions uh, were taken at Cabinet particularly uh, in terms of the overall direction in which the Government was going in relation to restrictions or uh, any decision in fact connected. To the pandemic it may well be that the finer detail of that decision was then delegated to the first minister or indeed other cabinet secretaries Uh, that's where gold command could often uh, come in or gold command may well come in when there was a development uh, in the virus and a decision had to be made either that evening or indeed uh, the next day.
8: So to put this in this particular context because one sees in the period of you being cabinet secretary for health and social care A number of exchanges of this nature where you are trying to take the counsel of Professor Leach in particular around the question of uh, levels that different areas should be applied, uh, should be put into. Um, When you say uh, the principle would be agreed by cabinet but the finer detail delegated, in this context would that mean that the cabinet had said there should be a level system but the First Minister and her close group would decide which uh, levels would
4: be applied to which areas. So forgive me, I couldn't tell you exactly uh, uh, the, uh, how the final decision on this particular... I'm artist. talking more broadly about that type yes, of decision, indeed So, right. I will absolutely answer uh, that question. It would often be the case uh, that we would come to an agreement in Cabinet about exactly what level a particular area would be in, there would be some areas where, uh, given the thresholds it would look uh, at in terms of uh, whether a local authority was in one level or another, that they may well be right on that threshold or close to that threshold. Mm. So there would be uh, the decision to delegate the final decision on East Renfrewshire or Glasgow or Murray uh, to Goal Command to or to First Minister to make that very final decision. So in essence,
8: it was the small group and the First Minister who made the decision which is important, which is which uh, level the, the, uh, the particular area should go
4: into? Not always. As I said on a number of occasions, Cabinet would agree the exact level for the exact local authority to have to go on. There was always going to be, within 32 local authorities, some that were uh, perhaps on the cusp of going into Level 3, some on the cusp of Level 2, and ultimately, before a decision was made, it was right that uh, that this final decision was delegated, uh, be it to the First Minister, the Cabinet Secretary for Health or others, with the most up-to-date information on case numbers, uh, the R number and test positivity. The Inquiry has
8: heard significant evidence about the principles of transparency and accountability in documents such as the National Performance Framework. Um, these are principles to which the Scottish Government is committed, is that correct? Yes. We have also seen uh, these principles reiterated throughout documents uh, relating to the pandemic response itself. For example, the Four Harms Framework of April 2020, is that correct? That is correct. And that tells us that the Scottish Government's position, as far as its public-facing aspect was concerned, was that it wished to apply those important principles in the way that it handled the pandemic. Uh, Is that correct? That is correct. And indeed, uh, there have been a number of opportunities for yourself and others on behalf of the Scottish Government to reiterate your commitment to those principles uh, with regard to your participation in this very inquiry. Is that correct? That is correct. On the 29th of June, You said uh, in response to a question in the Scottish Parliament, it's important that I abide by the rules of the UK Public Inquiry and the Scottish Public Inquiry to ensure that there is simply no doubt whatsoever any material is asked for, WhatsApps, messages, emails, signal messages, telegram messages or whatever will absolutely be handed over to the COVID inquiries and handed over to them in full. Has that always been your position? Uh, That has been my position, yes. This remains your position? Yes, that uh, any messages uh, we have should be handed over in full. It is important, is it not, not just for the very important purpose of engaging with subsequent public inquiries such as this in the Scottish Inquiry, but also during the course of a public emergency which does not derive from a single event but is continuous, that material relating to the way in which decisions were taken must be retained so that proper lessons could be learned and a better response to the pandemic developed. Is that correct?
4: That is uh, correct. And perhaps on this issue of uh, informal uh, messaging, including, of course, uh, WhatsApp messages, let me reiterate uh, what I have said in the chamber just uh, a couple of hours ago. Let me unreservedly uh, apologise to this inquiry, but also uh, to those who are mourning the loss of a loved one. Uh, that was bereaved by COVID, uh, by COVID, for the government's frankly poor handling of the various Rule 9 uh, requests in relation to informal messaging. Messages. There's no excuse uh, for it. We should have done better, and it's why I reiterate that public apology. Uh, today that ministers are and there is awareness amongst ministers amongst cabinet secretaries um, regardless of the medium of communication that any key decision that is in relation to uh, government business uh, should be recorded in the corporate record and the salient points recorded on the corporate record and that's usually done via the private office or, or via government uh, officials um, but I'm afraid, for a, a long time, the corporate mindset of the government, uh, the organisational mindset of the government, was because the corporate record had those key decisions and salient points. That was what we had to. That was the only thing really that was required to hand over to the inquiry. When the inquiry made it clear, of course, that uh, you're seeking uh, more uh, than that, and there is a gap, regardless of the records management plan, the, the mobile messaging policy, there is clearly a gap that exists in relation to how material and informal communications should be retained uh, in relation to a statutory public uh, inquiry. And that's why I've instructed an externally-led review uh, to look at this issue and other issues such as what ministers and cabinet secretaries should, should do, should they, for example, change device? Uh, in the midst particularly of an emergency such as a pandemic or anything that is analogous to that. Thank you. Um,
8: In answering questions about this area, uh, one of the senior civil servants, uh, Ms. Fraser, um, from the Corporate Directorate General, accepted that it was important in the interests of transparency and accountability to the Scottish public uh, that information about how decisions were reached should be retained. Do you agree with her? I do. You mentioned in your response there uh, the requirement, as I I understood you, uh, to retain information within the system uh, about key decisions that were made. Would you accept that both the policy in existence at the time, and indeed the principles of transparency and accountability, uh, require there to be careful record keeping of how decisions are made Meaning that
4: discussions leading to decisions also require to be recorded? Uh, yes, and, and again, our record management policy will make clear that it's not just the decision that has to be recorded, but I think the wording is used, the salient points on so any decision that I've made should also be recorded for the corporate
8: record. There's a difference though, perhaps, that it might be quite subtle, but it's just the salient points of a decision is one thing, but the salient government business involved in the process leading to the decision is another. Do you you accept that both categories require to be retained in order to fulfil the ultimate objective of transparency and accountability? Yes, and I
4: accept the point that you're making. I would say, of course, a records management policy is important for a couple of reasons. One, of course, for all of the reasons that you have just articulated in relation to transparency, good governance, but also for record management. Uh, We cannot possibly as, a, as, a, as an organisation keep every single piece of documentation uh, that is produced by the organisation, uh, it would be, be very, very challenging and difficult uh, to do so. So there is a need for that record management policy and ultimately there will be a point where it will be for the interpretation uh, the interpretation of the receiver of that information um, to, to, to decide whether or not that should be recorded in the corporate
0: record or not. Politics change but never stop. It affects everything we do. I'm Charles Fletcher with The Week in Hollywood. Join me here for coverage of the Scottish, UK and European parliaments. It's a crucial election year where you once again have a choice. Who's in, who's out. The ups, the downs. Join me, Charles Fletcher, bringing Hollywood home. You're listening to The Week in Holyrood with Charles Fletcher and still ahead in this half hour, the SNP Westminster leader calls again for a ceasefire in the Israeli-Gaza conflict. And we hear from the backbenches at Holyrood. First to London and the House of Commons. SNP Westminster leader Stephen Flynn is cutting quite a dash in the style of his questions to the Prime Minister. This week he turns again to the Middle East and calls for a ceasefire in the continuing Israeli-Gaza conflict. The PM does not take it further.
9: Mr Speaker, last night as Tory MPs were once again fighting amongst themselves the public were sat at home watching John Irvin of ITV News Report on footage from Gaza of an unarmed Palestinian man walking yeah. under a white flag being shot and killed by the IDF. Yeah. Prime Minister, such an act constitutes a war crime, yeah. does it not?
3: Yeah. Yeah.
9: Mr Speaker, we've been absolutely consistent
10: that international humanitarian law should be respected and civilians uh, should be protected. I've made that point expressly to Prime Minister Netanyahu and the Foreign Secretary is in the
9: region this week making exactly the same point. Stephen Clay. Mr Speaker, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom to rise to that dispatch box and tell the people of these isles and elsewhere that shooting an unarmed man walking under a white flag is a war crime Now, now in recent weeks this house has acted with urgency and intent following an ITV drama the question is will this house now show the same urgency and intent following this ITV news report and finally back a ceasefire in Gaza
10: Mr Speaker, no one wants to see this conflict go on for a moment longer than necessary and we do want to see an immediate and sustained humanitarian pause to get more aid in and crucially the hostages out helping create the conditions for a sustainable ceasefire. I set out the conditions for that earlier in the House. The Foreign Secretary is in the region today and we'll continue to press all our allies and partners to make sure that we can bring
11: about that outcome.
0: UK Labour leader Keir Starmer took a mocking approach as he began his series of questions to the Prime Minister. Mr
11: Speaker, the Prime Minister's had quite a week from endlessly fighting with his own MPs collapsing in laughter when he was asked by a member of the public about NHS waiting lists (laughs) so I was glad to hear that he he managed to take some time off
0: Can, Can I just say I wanted to the Prime Minister, I'm certainly going to hear the Leader of the Opposition, those people who don't want to hear, they can certainly leave because that's who it's going to be so get it in order, some of you are wanting
11: to catch my eye again, it's not a good way to do it Mr Speaker, I I love this quaint tradition where the more they slag him off behind his back, the later they cheer (laughs) in here. Keep it
0: going.
11: And also, for this side, you can have a joint cup of tea. Come on. Mr Speaker, I was glad to see that he managed to get some time off yesterday afternoon to kick back, relax, and accidentally record a candid video for Nigel Farage. (laughs) The only thing missing from that punishing schedule is any sort of governing or leadership. So was he surprised to see one of his own MPs say that he doesn't get what Britain needs and he's not listening to what people want? Prime Minister. Mr Mr. Speaker, he talks about
10: what Britain needs, what Britain wants, what Britain values. This from a man who takes the knee mr speaker who yeah. wanted to abolish the monarchy yeah. oh. who still doesn't know what a woman is yeah. and just this week and who just this week one of his front benchers said that they back teaching divisive white privilege in our schools mr speaker looking at his record it's crystal clear which one of us
11: doesn't get britain's values yeah. mr speaker he spouts so much nonsense, no wonder they're giving up on him. <laughs> uh, 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 and even now, as his government crumbles around him and his own MPs point out he's out of touch, got no plan for growth, crime or building houses, the Prime Minister is sticking to his one man Pollyanna show. Everything's fine. People should be grateful to him. The trouble is, no one's buying it. Does he actually understand why his own MPs say he doesn't understand Britain and that he is an obstacle to recovery?
10: Prime Minister. <laughs> Again, Mr Speaker, he, he calls it nonsense, but these are his positions, Mr Speaker. Right? And he doesn't want to talk about it, but this is the fact: He chose, he chose to represent a now-prescribed terrorist group, Mr Speaker. He chose to campaign against the deportation of foreign national offenders, Mr Speaker, just like he chose to serve the Right Honourable Member for Islington North, Mr Speaker. That's his record, those are his values, and that is exactly how he should be judged. Mr Speaker, in
11: 2008, I was the Director of Public Prosecution, putting terrorists and murderers in jail. He... He was making millions, betting on the misery of working people during the financial crisis. And we've seen this story time and time again with this lot. Party first, country second, safely ensconced in Westminster. They get down to the real business of fighting each other to death. The country forced to endure their division and chaos. The longest episode of EastEnders ever put to film. (laughs) Meanwhile, this week we discover that Britain is going to be the only major economy that no longer makes its own steel. That the government is handing out £500 million to make 3,000 steel workers redundant. And that the parents of thousands are being told that his free childcare promise is nothing but a mirage. Isn't he embarrassed that the Tory party is yet again entirely focused on itself? Yeah. Mr. Speaker, yet more sniping from the sidelines.
10: Yeah. Yeah, you can see, you can see, you can see. You can see exactly you can see exactly why his butteria hired him in the first place. But he wants to talk about these things. Even his own party are now realising that he simply doesn't have a plan for this country, Mr. Speaker. The member for Dagenham and Rayners said it's difficult to identify the purpose of his leadership. And long time and longtime celebrity backer Steve Coogan recently said, he licks his finger, sticks it in the air, and just sees which way the wind is blowing. Even Labour Party know, Mr Speaker, he's not a leader,
11: he is a human weather vane. Yeah. It's not the sidelines, it's behind him that the fire's coming in, Mr Speaker. And he can try and blame the Labour Party all he wants. The difference is, I've changed my party, he's bullied by his party.
0: Now back to the chamber here at Holyrood as we begin backbench questions. In the chair is presiding officer Alison Johnston.
6: Question number four, Michelle Thompson. To ask the First Minister whether he will provide an update on the Scottish Government's latest engagement with the UK Government regarding the status of the Grangemouth refinery. First Minister. Last week, the Energy
4: Secretary chaired the first meeting of the Grangemouth Future Industry Board, which includes representatives of the refinery, uh, its workforce, plus the UK government. I'm encouraged that the UK Minister of State uh, for Energy, Security and Net Zero did respond positively to Neil Gray's request to consider any proposal that supports a long-term and sustainable future for the Grangemouth Industrial Cluster, recognising its very strategic national importance to the economy of the whole of the UK. My Government is committed uh, to exploring all options to extend the life of the refinery and bring forward new transition projects at pace. I also welcome the UK Government's support of the Tata Steel Plant in Wales and I look forward to constructive dialogue to a similar package being available for Grangemouth to The Cabinet Secretary has written to the UK Government to seek a further discussion.
6: Michelle Thompson. I thank the First Minister for that response. And it is indeed heartening to hear that the UK Government are now open to giving support to the vitally important chemical cluster in Grangemouth in my constituency. There is a the potential for the refinery to move quickly to a biorefinery to be utilised for uh, sustainable aviation fuel. In other words, a just transition for workers right now. This would require support from the UK Government in terms of their policy barriers surrounding the HEFA cap. What indications, if any, are there that the UK Government realises potential, are willing to take the steps necessary and act in the best interests of Scotland for this vitally important national asset? First
4: Minister. Michelle Thomson is absolutely right, uh, there is a huge opportunity in relation to that uh, transition to net zero uh, for uh, Grangemouth. And it's clear, however, there are serious regulatory barriers to which uh, Michelle Thompson has already spoken to, um, to the owners uh, of Grangemouth to develop those opportunities, such as uh, SAF Sustainable uh, Aviation Fuel. Uh, the company has made clear that a major barrier to that immediate investment, and I stress, again, immediate investment uh, in a biorefinery at the site, is the UK government's proposed SAF mandate. And that HIPAA cap, HIPA cap uh, that was mentioned uh, by Michelle uh, Thompson, that requires action from the UK government, and I believe that action should be immediate and urgent. Grangemouth's hard workers and the wider community cannot be left uh, at the mercy of UK government in action. So the Scottish Government wants to secure the best possible future for Grangemouth. Uh, the key powers in this area, of course, lie, uh, regrettably, uh, at Westminster. So we will continue to push them to make the necessary changes to ensure that it plays a key role in powering Scotland's drive to net Thank zero. You, and I hope all First members Minister. of this chamber can get behind uh, the request that we've made Briefly, to the UK please. government to help that transition, uh, that, that transition for Grangemouth and their workers.
6: Question number five, Annie Wells.
3: Presiding <laughs> <laughs> officer. <laughs> <laughs> To ask the First Minister, in light of the Scottish Government's plans to open the first safe drug consumption room in Glasgow later this year, what assurances he can provide that other areas of drug policy, including spaces for residential rehabilitation, will not be deprioritised?
6: First Minister. Well, it absolutely
4: won't be deprioritised. Drug deaths are, of course, a public health emergency, and we remain absolutely committed to investing an additional £250 million in our national mission. To reduce harm and death caused by drugs. We will continue to take a person centred approach to address the wider needs of some of our most vulnerable people. We have been clear in our commitment to support the establishment of a safer drug consumption facility in Scotland, uh, to give uh, anybody else uh, a hope, sense of reassurance, funding was earmarked in the National Mission Budget in the knowledge that Glasgow might need to proceed quickly following the Lord Advocate's position. So no existing drug and alcohol services will therefore be affected to fund this pilot. Uh, we remain absolutely committed to expanding uh, residential rehabilitation capacity by 50 per cent by the end of this Parliament. And this includes the expansion of Beechwood House in Inverness, which I'm pleased to say broke ground this week. This will add much needed capacity in the Highlands when it opens in October.
6: Annie Wells.
3: I thank the First Minister for that response. Residential rehabilitation is a vital way in not just helping drug users beat addiction, but to help them get their lives back. And yet the most recent figures show people starting places in these facilities fell to their lowest in in more than two years. We know there aren't fewer people addicted to drugs, so why have those receiving this kind of help reduced? Can the First Minister assure these vulnerable people that his government will not oversee further reduction in places?
4: First Minister, well, first of all, we've obviously maintained uh, the drugs uh, budget for twenty four, twenty five. 25. That's in the face uh, of, of course, significant cuts to our resource budget uh, over the last uh, couple of years. And in terms of the expansion of residential rehab. Investment in seven uh, capacity projects combined provides an increase of 172 beds by 25, 26, boosting the current rehab capacity in Scotland from 425 to 597. Far from being a cut, that's an increase of up over 40%. uh, Uh, We've, as I said, progressed work on safer drug consumption facilities. We're continuing to widen the access to life-saving naloxone. We're continuing to drive the implementation of the MAT uh, standards in terms of the safer drug consumption facility which Annie Wells mentioned in her first question and please we've got to this position it would have been far easier and far quicker of course if the UK government had approved it in the first place.
1: Yeah.
5: Paul Sweeney, the safe consumption pilot in Glasgow is a critical part of our effort to tackle the drug death crisis in our country but we need many complementary tools In that toolkit to address the crisis effectively. The Turning Point 218 Centre in Glasgow, which supports women in the justice system with a number of critical issues, such as problematic drug use, is set to close next month due to funding cuts. So how can the First Minister say that other drug policy interventions are not being compromised when his government are allowing a well-established and effective lifeline service in Glasgow to close? First Minister.
4: I would say, uh, as I did in response, uh, I think to a question from Paul McNeill, uh, if it was last week or, or a couple of weeks ago, in relation to Turning Point uh, 218, uh, I know it is an excellent service. Uh, these are, of course, local decisions uh, that are made in relation uh, to funding. In our discussions uh, with Glasgow City Council, they have made it clear uh, that if that service uh, has to close, they are already ensuring that there is the appropriate service provision available uh, for the women impacted.
7: Question number six, Polly McNeill. To ask the First Minister what action the Scottish Government plans to take in response to the reported rise in attacks on prison guards and weapons found in prisons.
6: First Minister.
4: This Government and the Scottish Prison Service recognise the importance of providing safe, a safe and secure environment for those who live and indeed work in our prisons by adopting a zero-tolerance approach towards all violence. And while the SPS do report an increase in the recovery of weapons within prisons, this is likely to be a result of the positive impact of the mitigations that have been put in place to detect uh, to deter and reduce the availability of contraband across the prison estate uh, the rise also highlights uh, the professionalism of our prison officers their ability to identify and manage both risk uh, and threat and whilst every act of violence towards staff is absolutely to be condemned and I'm sure we'll be united uh, on that, uh, those acts of violence towards staff have reduced by 28% over the last four years Pauline McNeill
7: I thank the First Minister for that answer. Prison Guard attacks have more than doubled in seven years with nearly 4,000 weapons discovered in the last 10 years. So these include homemade weapons like knives made from razor blades melted into toothbrushes. So Phil Fairley from the Prison Officers Association said this week that the trend is growing at an alarming rate and coincides with an increase in assaults on both staff and prisoners and we are heading towards record high population numbers and have more members of organised crime gangs inside our prisons than ever. I agree with the First Minister that we have a high regard for our prison guards and the work that they do but does he agree that that they should not have to fear going into work and indeed prisoners themselves should not fear being in prison. So what discussions are the Scottish Government have having to ascertain why these homemade weapons are circulating? And is the First Minister concerned that the increase may be symptomatic of severe overcrowding in Scottish prisons? First Minister.
4: These are all very uh, really excellent questions from uh, Polly McNeil and I'll try to address uh, them uh, and, and if there's further information that the Justice Secretary can send to Polly McNeil uh, I will ensure that that happens. In relation to the overcrowding in our prisons, I don't disagree a uh, all actually with what Polly McNeil said. Our prison population is far too high and therefore there's a number of efforts that are going in to try to reduce uh, that. Our numbers in remand are far too high. Uh, and our, our, our numbers in the female prison population are far too high. So there are a whole range of actions that Justice Secretary and I have spoken about uh, over... Uh, number of months now to try to reduce uh, the pressures. is not a silver uh, bullet, I think, as Paul McNeill would absolutely understand, but there are a range of actions we can take. So I agree with her on reducing the prison population uh, being necessary. In relation to the actions that we're taking in, in, in regards to, to weapons and contraband into prisons, again, the Justice Secretary will furnish her with further details, but we are investing uh, in technology such as scan machines uh, and, indeed, other technology uh, body scanners uh, and so on and so forth in order to try to detect uh, that contraband coming uh, into our prisons uh, and the last point I would make uh, to Polly McNeill is she's absolutely right to say that we must place value uh, on our prison, uh, uh, on those who work uh, in our prisons, and that's why I was really pleased uh, that the latest pay proposal was overwhelmingly accepted by the SPAS uh, partner trade unions, and that's a two-year deal that delivers a salary increase of 10% for the majority of staff and um, with those in the low salaries benefiting from an over 12% rise uh, over the period of the pay award. So uh, I do believe that every single one of us uh, should uh, continue uh, to praise the efforts of our
0: prison staff right up and down the country for the fantastic work that And that's The Week in Holyrood from Caledonia Media. I'm Charles Fletcher. Join me again at the same time next week or at a time of your choosing on SoundCloud or Replay. I give